Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Just over three months ago, there was 91 points between Peko Banyaya and Fabio Quartararo in the 2022 MotoGP World Championship. Now, with three races left, that gap is down to two points. A Ducati title looks more realistic than at any time since 2007. Quartararo is under massive pressure. And Alicia Spargo, well, he's not out of the hunt, is he? We're in the best MotoGP title fight we've had in years. I'm Matt Beer. I am the Danilo Petrucci of the podcast again, because uh, our regular host, Toby Moody, has some other commitments. So me and him are going to be sharing this one for a, for a little while. So rather like Petrucci, you know, I guess people are sort of, you know, not too fussed that it's me doing it, but they're not going to be expecting a lot, really, are they? I think I, this is going to be a bit of a 20th place podcast performance. However... But but they will be happier. They will be happier that it was a wet race. I mean, I'm looking out my window now here in the West Country, and it's pretty dry. I don't think I'm going to have much hope, oh, to be honest. That's unfortunate. But luckily, we've got two two experienced regulars. So, Simon Patterson, Valentin Harunchi are joining me on the podcast to discuss the title fight, everything that happened in Thailand last weekend, and and I think Petrucci, the, the real one, is going to make it in here as well. So, gentlemen, let's. I, I'm going to go straight in with. Um, the big question after last weekend, who is going to win this championship now? Gut feeling, Simon. I still think it's Fabio Quartararo's. Um, I think the fact that the next three rounds of the season are at Phillip Island, uh, Sepang and Valencia slightly tip the odds in his favour. But I think that the best possible thing that could have happened for him is the fact that there's no week off before Phillip Island that he's going to sort his head out somewhere in a beach in Thailand and that hopefully he comes back the stronger character that we know that he is than what he's shown recently because it really is starting to show like there's a, a few cracks in the armour for the first time since the end of 2020. Um, it Obviously, it's easily to, easy to make the argument that all the momentum right now is with uh, Peko Bagnaya based on the run of form that he's had. Um but we've traditionally seen Ducati struggle hard at Phillip Island. We haven't been to Phillip Island in a long time. Uh, and that might have changed, but I don't think it's going to have changed substantially. I still think that's going to be a track where, where Cordaro can really perform. Uh, and I think we're in a position where really one good performance from him might be what he needs to get himself back in line. Uh Obviously, Sepang is a bit more open. That's the circuit where we know the Ducati will be fast. And I think that, you know, when we look at the next three races, the title will be decided at Sepang. It won't be decided at Phillip Island or Valencia, per se. But uh, even if it even if it is decided on paper in Valencia, the, the decisive final blow will come at Sepang. So, Quadraro is under more pressure than ever before, both because that lead has come down to two points and because we go to the next round where he's expected to win and where he really has to win. Um, so, yeah, let, let's, you know, I'm betting on him at this point, but let's see if that changes in a week's time whenever we've had a race in Australia. Yeah, um, 
I think, you know, gut feeling is it's it's still going to get weird in at least one of the remaining three <laughs> races. But look, if I if I look at it just objectively as I see it, I think Pecco Bagnaia is the comfortable, overwhelming favorite to bring home the title at this point. And I don't, I don't really see any other way into it. And that's accounting for the fact that at Phillip Island, uh, the inline four of Yamaha and the inline four-esque V4 of Aprilia should give the Ducatis a serious run for their money. Uh, Banyaya, I think, was decent at Phillip Island. The the only time he went there so far in MotoGP, he I think finished fourth, uh, pretty close to the podium, and it was a it was a clear highlight for what's otherwise a not so good rookie year. But but still, he was like 15 seconds off the win because the Ducatis weren't too competitive there. They'll be more competitive this year. Clearly, it's just a much better bike than the whatever it was that he was racing that year, the 18. Uh, but Sepang and especially Valencia, I think, are going to be a tall order. And the problem there is that, of course, we're going to look at Sepang and Valencia and think there's a real possibility there of rain playing a part. And after Mategi, I would have said that might actually rescue Fabio's title bid or help him out a bit. But then Buriram happened and Pecco wasn't amazing in the rain, but he was absolutely good enough. He was. It was the sort of ride that we saw from Quartararo last year at Le Mans, if you remember, which is, yeah, we had serious doubts about his wet weather potential. And he did he did just enough to where he finished behind the specialists, but ahead of everyone else who could have threatened his title. And Bagnaia did basically the same at Buriram. And I think so if, if it rains at Sepang, I'm not sure I'm favoring Fabio over Bagnaia. If it rains in Valencia, obviously the big question is, is that now every lap, and every turn will get a little weird. We always see this in tile fights, that it's it's always in the back of the audience's mind. And it's it's really clear that it's usually in some way in the back of the competitors' minds. Like it it, it does change something. It it stops being business as usual. And I think many people are quite prone to overthinking it, trying to, you know, count on the fly and all that. But all that said, you know, I think. Even if Fabio wins at Phillip Island, which is, I think, quite realistic, you, you look at that track layout and you look at that final corner that will slingshot him onto the, the sole big straight. And it really reminds you of, of Port Mao, the same type of final corner. So he shouldn't lose too much there and he's going to gain over the rest of the track. But then Sepang, I, I quite fancied the Ducati at Sepang because of the two massive straights, obviously and the possibility of the wets. And then Valencia, obviously, if you recall Valencia last year, it was a, I think, Ducati 1-2-3 on the grid and a very comfortable Ducati 1-2-3 in the race, every lap led by Ducati. Two points is, as, as Yamaha's Maya Marigali put it, it's, you know, the championship starting from zero. It really is. Two points, just not a lot. Either could still crash. And look, if Banyaya goes down at Phillip Island, then that's probably championship Carteraro, and that could happen but without you know without trying to break any of the out of the ordinary stuff Banya is my pick the the more I think about it the more I listen to what you've just said Val and, and sort of contextualizing what you've just said with what we've seen this year um I think I'm pretty certain that this year's championship we we do we start from zero now that's a, a really like we do we go into the last three races with everything it's like a British superbike showdown everything's to play for in these last three rounds yeah it's going to be decided by a crash that could be with with the two riders that we've got in championship contention and their history and their 
psyches, this championship's going to be decided now with a crash. I'm pretty sure of that. You mean in terms of an error by one of them or actually a crash between them? One of them is one of them is going to make an error at some point in the next three races. And that would decide this conclusively. Yeah, I think the, they both have three opportunities to chuck it in the gravel under massive <laughs> pressure. It's entirely possible one of them will take it. I think that's that's a reasonable bet. I think the most normal outcome, like if I just in my brain try to process the most normal way this championship plays out, is Bagnaia leading at Valencia and Quartararo needing to finish third or fourth and fighting some Ducati for third or fourth in Valencia. So a la, I don't know, a la Rossi Lorenzo 20... What was that year? How did I forget what that year was? 2015? I'm sorry. Jesus, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> that nondescript for- forgettable year. Yeah. I've blanked it from my mind, so <laughs> it's entirely possible you have to. <laughs> uh, but this is MotoGP, and the entirely unrealistic but also equally likely possibility is that the two of them wipe each other out, Sepang, and Port- and uh, Phillip Island race winner Alicia Spagaro takes the championship. <laughs> this is MotoGP, yeah. and this weird things happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we've we've kind of had this whole conversation and not even mentioned Espigaro, who in theory is out of championship contention right now. 25 points with three rounds to go. It's marginal, but we've seen bigger gaps come back and we've seen championship contenders take each other out this season. Now, it's, you know, as long, honestly, as long as you're within 25, come to Valencia, I think anything's possible because, again, title deciders get weird. That's just... That's just the nature of motorsport. But I don't, I don't love his chances of being within 25 in, in Valencia because not just because of what we've seen this weekend, because obviously everyone will po- point to the extenuating circumstance of the different Michelin rear that was brought that is based on an older version with a stiffer carcass that clearly didn't work for a Aprilia. You could see it with, um, with Alege, you could see it with, with Maverick who actually had a marginally better race in the end, but but still. That said, even before those weekends, you could sort of see Aprilia has also found itself in the situation where Ducati's marginal gains with its new 2022 package have finally, I think, left it fairly firmly behind alongside Yamaha. And whereas Fabio had this built-in lead that's now gone, Alicia's just having to like pick off any point he can to to stay in the fight and hope against hope that uh, basically that Banyaya makes mistakes because without Banyaya's mistakes, he will not win this title, I think. It still feels too soon for the Aprilia championship story, Yeah, basically. So, you know, when, it's only a year and a half ago, not even that, that the story about Vinales going there broke. And at that point, the idea of someone leaving Yamaha for Aprilia still seemed absolutely mad. Mm-hmm. And yet, so, you know, this, this through, throughout this season, what Alicia Spargo has done, what the team has done under Revola at Massimo Revola is fantastic. But it has always seemed a little bit too good to be true. And especially a little bit too good to be true for a whole 20, 20-ish race season. I think we are, we are seeing that now. But like you guys have said, if he can stay just about close enough... He's potentially the more the more level-headed of the trio going into the final three, or at least has the chance to be more level-headed because he's under least pressure. Ironically, considering he's the most hot-headed off the bike, well, yeah. but it seems like he yeah. maybe find, maybe that's quite a good thing because it vents all his stress before he gets on the bike. I don't know. Maybe there's some weird psychological excuse for it. Um, Aprilia have shown this year that they're exactly like you said, Matt. They're not ready to be title contenders just yet. Um, like they have, they believe throwing away probably 
the 25 points that they needed to be sitting level with these two guys right now through both rider error and team error with the the eco fuel map in uh, japan that Aleish said without it he could have fought for the podium and with Aleish's own mistake in in barcelona not counting the lap setting up early and giving away a podium um you add those two together which were they're not mistakes in the traditional sense of oh he fell off the motorbike they're really different types of errors they're they're worse they're worse they're so much worse um and they're i'm not blaming anyone for them because you know they do happen and one came from a rider and one came from a team but i think it's it's pretty conclusive proof that neither party are perhaps a championship contender status right now and you could probably get away with one side of the equation not quite being ready for it if if you look at it as a three-way system where you need the bike the team and the rider they've got the bike they are building the team and the rider definitely has the talent but maybe not quite the experience despite being the most experienced person in the grid because he's never done this before um there's no reason why they can't add you know to both of those weak points next year and have a stronger rider and a stronger team with a good bike but right now i just don't think it's all there my gut feeling is if if Aleish stays within let's not not just say within 25 but within something like more palatably manageable like within 15 coming to Valencia. My feeling is that that'll also mean that one of Jack Miller and, and A. Bastianini is going to be within 25 come Valencia because both are in quite solid form, especially as of recently Jack, because these are new tracks for an A.A., whereas for Jack, they're not. Um, so then it, then it could get super weird. I mean, ultimately, I, I can't think of a, like a four-rider title showdown in MotoGP. I can't even think of a, a three-rider one, really. Which is not not something that we're really massively set up for. Even the extra super weird 2020, the title was decided with with one one race to spare. And in in that, uh, there's, there's I think there's a whole sort of subplot going on without within the other Ducatis. I mean, at one point during the Thailand race with the conditions and everything, honestly, it was looking like Jack Miller was going to go into the final three with a real tangible outside but not so ridiculous chance of being the 2022 MotoGP champion um I think for that chance to feel real I think for me he would have had to pass pass Oliveira and win the race although it's it's only five points but it's you know at this point five points it's a lot of points but things could still get weird he's he's in mathematical reaches as Bastianini what is interesting is that Jack was not clearly was not thinking in those terms at Buriram because as you know, as both he and Pecco spoke about it, he was trying to give Pecco motivational pep talks before the race because Pecco saw the um, the rain come in after a, a really good dry weekend and after what happened to him in Mategi in the rain where he was desperately off the pace. Obviously, that will have been difficult for confidence and Jack tried to help him overcome it. Which, you know, is not something you do for a title rival, but it's something you do for a teammate who you're quite happy to see win win the championship. Wonder if the point situation was just a little different. Would that be a little different? But honestly, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe that's just Jack. Uh, interesting, because they're not going to have the same d- dynamic at, at, at the Works Ducati team next year. No chance. 
But can you imagine the absolute scenes of Ducati spent 20 years trying to win a second world championship and Jack Miller does it in his final race for them before they're heading off to KTM because they've sacked him. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's just... We, we, won't be, we won't get to dwell on that too much or maybe over the off-season because for that to happen, again, there has to be calamity. Yeah, and, and it, if there is that calamity and you suddenly push... Espargaro, Miller, and Bagnaya back into the title fight going into the final round. You have to think Miller is the third level of those three contenders based on his season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, this 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 brings us really well onto the into the into the Ducati situation, which is probably the, the most fascinating part of the end of this title race. Now, to me, going back to this reset position, we're almost where we were at the start of the championship now, where we thought, okay, Ducati is going to have the fastest bike and it's got about a million of them on the grid and they're all going to work around Banyard. We're exactly where we thought we were in March, except we've had this slightly bizarre season of Ducati trying to find ways to not win the title despite having the fastest bike and about a million of them on the grid. But now it's, it's back in contention again. I, I, I do think all the stuff about... Bastianini and Miller still being sort of title contenders feels like a red herring. Honestly, when you, when you look at the points, mm. I do feel like too many bizarre things should, would have to happen. And if if Ducati's got in mind at all that it's keeping it open for those two riders to still be in contention, then you know that that just seems like a way of of losing a championship. To be honest, when it's got the chance to put all its weight, and its weight is absolutely massive right now with eight bikes going that fast, all its weight behind one rider. I think honestly, I think. Thailand has offered you, or has offered all of us, another very clear clue at how Ducati wants this thing to play out. I think it was it was extremely obvious. Whether or not their approach is the right one is a different question. But it, I think it is extremely clear that what Ducati wants is for its riders to just sort of understand unspokenly. Again, I've, I've overused this term a whole bunch because I'm a, an obnoxious political science graduate. But what can you do? <laughs> it's soft power. You get somebody to do something without explicitly telling them. Ducati does not want there to be an on-the-record team order. It certainly does not want mapping eight. It does not want a pit board with drop one position because those are all images that stick in your mind. And those are the kind of images that will make people at the end of the season go, oh, they had eight bikes and he used those eight bikes to basically orchestrate the title. Ultimately, if they have to do it, they will do it because it doesn't matter as long as you're champion. Yeah, I was going to say, Val, that they'll have that image in their mind in November 2022, but they might not have by 2025. No, they won't. You know, when they look back on, did Ducati win a no. title? I don't think people are going to care about the small print of how, how team orders it. Yes, was. but I think it... I wouldn't care, but I think it is, it is obvious that Ducati does. I, for me, it seems fairly clear. And also, what, what I am intuiting that from is what Zarco did with Banyaya towards the end of the Buriram race, where Zarko repeatedly admitted that he, he could have sent it down the inside of, of Banyaya, that he could have overtaken him probably if it was, if Banyaya wasn't making it so risky by breaking really late. But I think there was an, this implicit understanding in Zarko that, you know, that podium is just, just not worth the bother that would come with it. Because I'm not going if, to, if, if, if he had a chance at winning the race, he would have done it. I believe that. But he realized he didn't. And he decided fourth was better than third in this particular case. And Ducati was super happy with him in Pramac. He said Gigi Delinia, uh, the Ducati tech chief, was over the moon and praised him for being gentlemanly. Uh, Banyai himself thanked him. And that's sort of, that's what Ducati wants. It wants initiative. And I think it also, 
I've had it brought up to me that Ducati did not maximize the race because it did not order, say, Jack Miller to drop three seconds at the end of the race and give Vanya an extra four points by putting him from third to second. This is true. I Ultimately, if we were going full orchestration, you would do this. But it's this is where the optics question comes in. And this is where I think there probably exists a confidence within Ducati that they do not need this to win the title. And it would be ugly. And there's a difference between sort of off the record, getting someone to just not push, not attack too much. And between just, you know, giving up three positions, doing a Rubens Barrichello Austria 2002 or whatever. It's, 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 it's a complicated situation. I am genuinely, I, w- I remember I was raging a few podcasts ago about them missing the open goal of, you know, not telling an Bastianini to stay put at Aragon and Misano. I stand by that argument, but I am, I understand. Like, I get it. You, you do not want to invite all the stuff that you would invite by making it very, very obvious. It's not just the bad PR, it's also the consideration of some of the clearly of the rival team bosses that you should not be able to flex your eight bike muscle nilly willy to orchestrate races. Clearly, I think Aprilia's Massimo Rivola has made it pretty clear that that he would consider that a breach, if not of the regulations then of the competitive etiquette that the likes of Gershini, Pramac and VR36 have to be separate entities to the factory Ducati team. But it's, you know, so instead it starts coming down to those sort of interpersonal relationships and the relationship of each rider with each factory and all that. And it, it gets weird and maybe there's too much gray area, but I'm, I'm sympathetic and I don't know how I'd be handling this, to be honest. I think we're going to see some sort of a change proposed by rival manufacturers in the long run as a result of this. Um, because team orders are part of motorsport. And, and no one's arguing that. No one's arguing that, you know, that it's, it's not the right thing to do to influence the results of races with your other riders. And I don't really think that there's a huge sort of... I, I don't think there's a huge backlash of negative energy towards Ducati for the, the mapping eight thing at Sepang a few years ago where they specifically no. told Jorge no. Lorenzo to let uh, Andrea De Vizioso pass to try and fight Mark Marquez because there was a title on the line. I think fans accepted that as a, as a, you know, a part of racing. But the problem that Ducati are in now is almost, it's almost a double-edged issue where I, I get completely what you're saying, Val, about soft power. Um, and I think that uh, Jan Zarco kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit after the race on Sunday with TV interviews, which was then completely not what he said to the print media by the time he got to us, um, which I'm sure wasn't co- no, completely coincidental, um, by, by kind of implying that there are team orders in place and have been since uh, what, since uh, Bastianini beat Bagnaia Mizano, or fought him at Mizano. Uh, and those team orders say you, you're free to win races and you're free to fight for race wins, but you're not free to fight against Bagnaya for any other position. And that's pretty much what we saw on Sunday when he gave up as soon as he got behind him. Um, the The problem that they face is that I almost think there'd be a lot less negativity towards them if they'd come out and said, there are team orders in place and Jack Miller will not interfere with 
Peko Bagnaya and uh, Jorge Martin and Johan Zarco are number one satellite team or factory supported fact, uh, satellite team will not interfere with them but the other Ducatis are free to race but the problem is whenever you've got a third of the bike racing to some un, unpublished unofficial order that only exists in a closed meeting with the Ducati riders and they've got the best bike in the grid you know, people like an underdog, and right now Ducati are not an underdog. They are the dominant power yeah. here, and they're flexing that absolute dominant power. And that's the bit that's going to taint this more than anything else. Now, if if it comes to if it comes to Jack Miller P1 and Peko Bagnaia P2 at Valencia, and Bagnaia needs 22 points to win the championship, and Miller pulls over and lets them through, that will be seen, I think, more favorably than Zarco getting behind him and acting as rear gunner or Miller getting behind him and acting as rear gunner the way that they have been doing over the course of the season because that doesn't that to me seems less fair yeah I, I see what you mean and ultimately mm, it's it's like you know don't don't think we're fooled don't think we like there's there's been this whole I think it's been a real reluctance to talk about it on, on Ducati's side, which I, I get. Again, you do not want to give more quotes about this than is than you would you can absolutely get away with. And again, I fully sympathize. And I I don't think they've done a bad job of managing it because it's difficult, but I don't think they've done maybe as perfect a job as they could. But what you brought up there, the fact that they're not underdogs, I think is also the, the big difference between this and Sepang 17 and Valencia 17. They were big time underdogs there. It was Mark Marquez going for his fourth title? Yeah. Versus uh Dovi potentially trying to, to you know to snipe his first. Ultimately, it's it is a it is a PR exercise going on right now. And I think honestly, if they said Pramac also can't interfere, but Crescini and VR46 would, I mean, I wouldn't believe that. VR46 is Valentino Rossi's team. Beko Bagna is Valentino Rossi's son. So it's already we heard VR46 talking before the race, uh, saying that they would help Banya if they could. Ultimately, you know, they would go for the win, but if not, they would help Banya if they could. And, you know, that's probably a, a wider Ducati thing. It's, you know, they've probably behind closed doors. That's sort of the agreement has been hashed out. But also just don't expect the structure that helped mold Banya into what he is, and that is owned by the guy who is his mentor to make his life difficult so that just leaves Enea Bastianini who's a whole wild card in this but you know while he's on on these tracks that are new to him and the conditions are a little weird he's not really a problem right now if he's a problem at Valencia then that's going to be really interesting but I imagine by Valencia he would fall in line unless he's also in the title fight at that point somehow Man, if you think people are going to be unhappy that Ducati aren't the underdog and are working for Bagnaia's favor, what do you hear what they have to say about Valentino Rossi working for his favor too? I think listening to you two debate this has kind of crystallized my thoughts on on this one into like three slightly contradictory things. As a fa- as a fan, all the shuffling reminds me of how the the DTM and even the International Touring Car Championship used to work, where it was like yeah. manufacturers with six or eight cars on the grid, and there'd be seasons where 
every Mercedes would move out of the way to get Bernd Schneider to the front with three rounds to go. And there was a season, I think, yeah. 96, where all three manufacturers are doing that. And it was just, it was just ridiculous. And that's, you know, that's how Pascal Verlaine won the title. Yeah. Who, who remembers him from Formula One. Not to say it was yeah. a bad title, it's just it's how he won it because it's how you won DTM titles. However, this is where my, if I was the boss of Ducati... I don't think anyone apart from us remembers that about how Mercedes and Verline won that. And I would be thinking if I was Ducati, we have spent millions on this. We have not won anything in this for a decade and a half. We've got to get the job done. This is the way we get the job done. It's not our fault. We've got eight bikes and no one else has more than a couple. You know, let's just win this title. No one will care how we did it in three years time. And then the website editor part of me thinks, I can see this ending with um, Quattararo being champion because Bastianini's taken Banyar out in the final round. And that sounds like an awful lot of traffic. So that's kind of, <laughs> especially going to next year with them being teammates, that might be my preferred outcome. Uh-huh. And, and you know, you, as you say, they've got eight bikes in the grid because no one else wanted to. I think the end goal of this will be that we'll see some sort of a, a cap on the number of bikes that any one manufacturer can put in the grid. I think that's what uh, the rivals will look at here. I think some sort of a six-bike limit. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We should talk quickly about a guy who is not in this title fight, but um, I don't know, I just feel more and more like he might be part of next year's. Uh, Mark Marquez. The pace he showed this weekend, I just felt like it was another step on from Motegi in terms of showing that this is this is the real proper comeback now. What what do you guys think, Val? I don't know. I don't think I've learned anything particularly new compared to Motegi. And actually, there's a part of me that's like, at this point, I think the limiting factor is the bike. And there's only so much you can do with that. And now I feel it's more down to the Honda engineers than to his recovery. That's sort of my feeling. Because... He can already run consistent pace, and I don't think he's like a I don't think he's a one lap specialist right now relative to many of the other people in the grid. But he you know he used to be a race specialist, and I don't think his race pace has been so conditioned by the injury. I'm not sure. It's 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 difficult to say. Obviously, he said that he by Sunday, obviously at the end of the triple header, all the business had taken its toll, and so he's not he was not at a hundred percent. But I don't know that a hundred percent mark would have won maybe would have dragged it onto the podium and those are you know again that was a wet Mategi oh Mategi that was a wet Boram those were basically his conditions we look at the guys who finished one two and four they're you know they're the the specialist of that condition they're Miller they're Oliveira and they're Zarco they're the the three guys you want on a wet drying track Mark Marquez is the fourth 
and at his peak, Mark Marquez is the only guy you want in those conditions and in any other conditions because at his peak, he's the best ever by far. But oh, I'm going to get some emails over this, but that's okay. Um, I think it's, it's going to be about the bike because in his current state, and I think the more he recovers, we're going to see Mark absolutely snipe some victories this year. Well, no, this year, probably next year, especially at, at the tracks that are his tracks. Like he could... You know, he could chop to Kota in a 125cc and probably still win. That's That seems to be how it works. But the bike just looks really far off in everybody else's hands. And there's only so much of a gap you can do. It's It's been hard to, to tell exactly, especially at Buriram, because oh, the state of Honda's lineup, rider lineup right now, is a little weird, to put it bluntly. I think Paul has basically not been himself for several months now ever since it became clear he's been out of honda he's had minimal pace he's not even he's not reached anywhere near the heights that he's had at some points in honda he's just been riding out there sort of tack has now been injured but also hasn't you know when he was there the pace was not great and alex marquez is, has only been good in in the wet he was really good in the wet this weekend but that's alex marquez so we don't really know but it doesn't it doesn't look very good in terms of the bike competitiveness. Somehow, Honda might not finish last in this year's Constructors' Championship because uh, Suzuki is a tire fire. But still, that's I think that's the weakest bike. And I don't think you win the title with the, the outright weakest bike. I definitely think he's going to win races next year. But yeah, we, 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 we all can name the three. But... I don't know. I'm not. I'm less convinced than I I was a little bit before, and I don't know why. It's just me being fickle, maybe. I I'm absolutely certain that Mark Marquez can win the title on a bad bike because I think he's done it before. Whenever you yeah. look at how, but on the worst he bike. was. That's. I'd argue it wasn't far off it. Sort okay. of eighteen. Whenever you look at the performances of other people. Um, on that bike, when you look at how Danny Pedrosa's career kind of faded away, when you look at how te- how absolutely terrible Jorge Lorenzo was in 2019, um, I think that, that Mark can do miracles. But I think that the problem with that theory is that we don't know, and Mark doesn't know, if he's going to come back 100% Mark Marquez, because I, I don't think he's there yet. Um, he admitted a little bit more over the course of the last few weeks about sort of the the latest state of where he is with recovery and he's building muscle he's getting stronger you can still noticeably see there's a difference in his two shoulders one is more muscular than the other because he hasn't used one of them for the best part of three years Um, that in theory can be recovered but this is the problem now that he's facing and he admitted at the weekend that that right arm has been sliced open five times there's been knives in it five times there's been muscles destroyed and damaged through all of those surgeries and no one including the the best doctors in the world that he can find to look at it know exactly how much damage has been done to the musculature of it so he just needs to keep doing what he's doing which is riding motorbikes on weekends and working like crazy in the gym midweek he needs the summer break, which let's not forget this year is essentially the longest summer break that MotoGP have had in his time there because of the late start to the season. 
and the early finish to this season. So he's got a good sort of solid three months of time. I should just uh, add, add there that um, Simon's currently in Australia. So when he says a summer break, he uh, he means the winter break. <laughs> I do mean the winter break. <laughs> oh, man, it's been a long few days. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got this shorter, a shorter summer break than normal next season, but we've got two of them. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but yeah, he, he just needs to work, 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 work. And then we see what happens. And I don't think we're going to know until first round of next year, really, what he's capable of. Or, to put it another way, how little the the, the state of the Honda matters. You guys uh, cited Marquez as one of the the bankable great wet weather riders on the grid there. So there's a couple more of those I'd like to talk about before we kind of move on from what happened on track last weekend. Let's, uh, Let's start at the back. Sadly, should Danilo Petrucci have bothered? Is the blunt way of phrasing that question. 100%. Um, and it was absolutely nothing to do with his performances that make me say that. Um, him and I did a, an interview on Thursday, on his first day back in the paddock. We did like, it was supposed to be 10 minutes, it turned into 20 because he couldn't stop talking. And the, the, the metaphor we kind of came up with for his return was like, it was a bit like being able to go to your own funeral and seeing how much everyone loved you after he died. <laughs> Because he said he never really realised how appreciated he was in the MotoGP paddock until he came back into it, and then everyone was so happy to see him back. Um, so you know, as a someone that likes a, a bit of a romanticism in the stories, I think just for Danilo Petrucci turning up like Lazarus uh, makes it all completely worthwhile. Um, who else were they going to put in the bike that would have been any better? I think we're all pretty bored of seeing Japanese test riders who we know have no chance of achieving anything in the bike with no ill will in the world towards them. Um, You might as well, you know, Suzuki have got three races left. You might as well do something dumb, you know, put Christopher Mullen on it in in Phillip Island. If uh, (laughs) if Juan Mir's still not fit, phone Lorenzo and see what he's doing in Valencia. Why not? Why not just go out by being insane with it? You're missing the obvious Australian wildcard pick for Philip Island, yeah, which is yeah, the wildcard legend with the Mike Jones. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but and wouldn't it be ironic if Mike Jones had the best performance of any Suzuki stand-in rider? There's a very real possibility that Mike Jones could have the best performance of any Suzuki rider this season. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> all he'd really have to do is put it at the podium. But well, you know, I think when you ask, should he have bothered? But ultimately, when you're a stand-in, this is just this is not the MotoGP we used to know. You don't show up as a wild card and stick it onto the podium. You show up as a wild card and you non-score, and you have to come into the weekend being ready for that. Basically, I think whatever the condition really. When I, you know, obviously with Danilo, the X factor of you know wet weather may be something there, but it's still just so much to overcome. Such a knowledge gap. And, you know, form gap, rhythm gap to overcome. Even test riders can't really do what they used to do when they show up. Like in past seasons with the way, with how good this Ducati is, if it was past seasons, we'd see Michele Piro probably on the podium at some point this season or something. Yeah, Yeah, true. Whereas right now he's sort of on the outskirts of the top 10, top 15 usually. And that's the absolute best any wildcard can do or any stand-in can do. I don't think there's more available. So in that in that regard, I'm with Simon in that. Just put as many interesting people as you can on the bike. I I'd still like to see Domi Agerter show up for one weekend, just see what he can do. Uh, 
and it's just you know it's nice it's nice to see a new number name combination on the bike and it's you know the suzuki season really needs some feel good stuff feel good stuff because otherwise it's been total drag i mean let's be honest here it's it's winding down it's it's going out not with a bang but with a whimper and that's no ill will towards any of the people involved that was the natural conclusion given that everything that happened happened and if if those people are already thinking of their next job i don't blame them and if they're not then they're troopers for sticking it out and doing their best with a project that's over um Alex Rins, ever since, you know, Jean Mir's gone down injured, we've seen glimpses of real good pace from Alex Rins, but that's just the theme of Suzuki season. You see glimpses of really good race pace and they they can't make it through the through the pack, either because it's harder to overtake now, but also because the pack is just not all there and it will never be there because this project is over. So yeah, just stick, you know, put Mike Jones on it, put Tommy Agarter on it. Uh, bring somebody out of retirement. I don't know. Go nuts. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know who you'd bring out of retirement at Phillip Island. <laughs> it just, just Dorner should just write a blank <laughs> check and give it to Casey Stoner and say, put as many zeros at the end of it as you nah, want. But he's, he's not going to do it. I'm, <laughs> I am joking. I am joking. The problem with coming out of retirement is <laughs> a bigger chance <laughs> of getting Lewis right. Hamilton on there or something. He would. He would. The uh, the pro- the other problem with coming out of retirement is is a point that uh, Petrucci made really really well at the end of this year. He has obviously done a Dakar this year and has done a full season of Moto America, and he got back to riding a MotoGP bike and was like, "I am not fit enough for this." Yeah, and and I I posted that over the weekend, and I thought people thought I was being a bit facetious, but it was a genuine quote from him. He says that the fitness level required required for riding a MotoGP bike is just another level. Um, you know, in, in typical Petrucci form, he was joking on Saturday that uh, the team had told him that the Suzuki, the inline fours are easier to ride the faster you go. or the, 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 You go faster, the more tired you get because it makes you be smoother. And he was like, it's great. I'm going to win the race. I get tired after five <laughs> laps. And, and, you know, that's from someone who's just come off the back of a really competitive superbike season. So, Yeah. Coming out of retirement and, and hoping to achieve anything on these bikes is just not going to happen. Yeah, it's. I do. I do slightly wish there'd been a bit more clarity about how long Mir would be off for. I know that's difficult in an injury situation, but I think I think we all suspected this wasn't going to be a one race absence and then back. And then I know Petrucci couldn't get out of Ducati at that point, but it is a bit of a shame. I think even a test rider or a wild card with three races to bed in and to ride the bike in a few different conditions might have had half a hope of of getting somewhere. I, I think I think there was no clarity because, and this is me reading between the lines, I think Jean Mir's heart bleeds blue and he tried to come back as soon as he could yeah. and he could not. It was a it was an error. And I, you know, I could have told you that because I've been banging that drum all the time in the podcast, but ultimately the heart wants what it wants. You give it a go. Um, if, it, if, if it were up to me, we wouldn't see him back on that bike because I don't see the point. Just heal up, prepare yourself for the Honda Adventure because that's going to be a tough one. It's going to be really, really hard. But I don't know, maybe rock up in Valencia and have a nice, pleasant farewell with Suzuki finishing 20th or something. Although, yeah, it's, that's, that's being mean to Joran, obviously. I, I'm not saying that he's a rider who finishes 20th, it's just me not fully fit. So just take it a little bit easy. But season's over that that chapter of your career it's ending say a nice goodbye to everybody 
and move on to that weird Repsol colored bike that makes no sense. <laughs> Hooray. And and the you know, in hindsight now, um Schwanmir kind of did the dirty in Domi Agater. Because if there was one place that Agater was gonna get a chance to replace him, it was Aragon, where Mir attempted foolishly and eventually pointlessly to come back. Um, but it's worth remembering that despite Agatha's quite good pace actually in, in those like 33 laps of test and he did the World Superbike season for the first time ever basically ends super late after the MotoGP season and he's fighting for a title there yeah. so I, I just can't really see a Agatha has a, a World Superbike deal right? He's a World Superbike deal for next year with GRT Yamaha and a yeah. factory supporter so he'll be he'll be Remy Gardner's teammate he will just yes. you know, and for any podcast listeners that will have missed and and for <laughs> any podcast listeners who care uh, it's just been announced today that he'll be replaced in World Supersport at Tenkata next year by Moto2 stalwart Jorge Navarro yeah. which is a, a real good sign in for I mean I care I really care but <laughs> I care yeah hi producer Johnny here Interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. We haven't yet talked about the guy who actually won the race in Thailand last weekend, Miguel Oliveira. Um, the the note in our in our sort of semi script for this says, "Has KTM made an error in losing Oliveira?" I I would argue only if it could guarantee torrential downpours on twenty weekends next year. To be honest, but Val, what do you reckon? I mean, he's also. I think the argument is a little stronger than that because he's also been improving in the dry and. With Miller, as good as Miller has been recently, you don't know that you're getting a massive upgrade over Oliveira weekend to weekend. And the problem is you're going to suffer the penalty of having a rider learn the new bike, which is a penalty that clearly exists in modern MotoGP and which means for half the season, basically, you're with that. That maybe Jack will prove super adaptable, I guess. Let's see. Um, Miguel was excellent. He's really good. And he's, he's in a, again, he's one of those Miguel patches of form where you're like, I mean, if, if this if this was a whole a whole season type thing, this guy could absolutely win a MotoGP title. And just just in general as a whole, we could we could say that Miguel is the least successful of the 2019 class of rookies, and he has five wins. And he has five wow, wins, five, four of them, no, yeah, and four of them really dominant, like yeah. really really comfortable. It is 
it is absolutely incredible and it it's just like I will never stop banging the gong about that 2019 class, which if people don't remember, Fabio Cartararo, Francesca Bagnaia, Juan Mir, Miguel Oliveira. Amazing. Incredible. Um, look, there's, I don't think we've learned anything new here because Miguel Oliveira is good always for two weekends a season at least where he is incredible, where he is the best rider on the grid. And that's, I mean, that'll sound like a backhanded compliment, so I want to make it clear. That is not the case for the vast majority of MotoGP riders. The vast majority of MotoGP riders will never be the best MotoGP riders on any weekend. And Miguel Oliveira has now done that four times. So all that said, I think the split is still good for both parties because I think with Oliveira and KTM, we've sort of reached that Vinales Yamaha point where what you see is what you get and you know that it's not going to last for as long as you want it to last, that it's going to oscillate. So for KTM to roll the dice on somebody extra, maybe experience an initial drop-off, but see if they can gel better together long-term. And for Oliveira to try a bike, that's a good bike. The RSGP that might coax out this kind of thing from him more consistently. I think it's good for both because these weekends, this kind of performance, it makes you think, okay, I'm, I like seeing this, this is awesome, but I really, it makes you, always makes you think, this is a guy who could fight for the MotoGP title if he does this on a regular basis. Because he's also, we've not just seen that in the wet, we've seen it in the dry. It's, he can do it. We've seen that absurd walkover at Portimao at the end of 2020. He can really do it when all things come together. And you, you just, you wanna, you wanna know, I guess, if a change of scenery will suddenly make it an every second weekend thing in in a sense so the the absolute dominance of his win in tricky conditions at the weekend kind of reinforced my my strongest opinion on miguel Oliveira, which is that if you're a satellite MotoGP team who aren't there to bring through new riders or to work as on track development like say pramac then he should be your number one target every season that he's available for a contract because Satellite teams are never going to fight for championships. So what you want is someone who can fight for wins on occasion. And he is the guy that you'd have on your bike if you wanted to have a couple of wins a season. If you were LC or Honda with a half competitive bike, if you were Grissini Ducati looking to replace um, Enea Bastianini, who essentially did that role this year for them. If you are the RNF Aprilia team who want to get back to the glory days of their Patronus sponsors, Yamaha's, um, he's the guy you'd want. And there's a reason that those three teams went head to head to try and get his name on a contract for next year, because he is very, very good at delivering big PR wins for satellite teams. But I think he's shown both with his own inconsistencies and with the way that he's been matched against Brad Bender at KTM, that he's not a championship contender. Um, at least not right now. So worst case scenario is he goes away, he sorts his head at a satellite team and then has another go at it with a different manufacturer because it ain't going to work at KTM. But I think this is the the big frustration for me with, with Oliveira. And, and I was quite flippant in my dismissal of him at the start of this segment. But the level of dominance he can achieve at his, at his best level is so dominant. He someone performing like that is wasted at a satellite team like Val says that is title winning form obviously you need to do it more than four times a year but disparity in this guy's performance between his, his very top end and his 
middle to bottom end is is so vast it, it might you know ktm has not been the greatest environment for an awful lot of riders it might be that moving to rnf and into a, into aprilia will be the change of bike change of scenery change of management he he needs and we do see this on a more consistent basis but yeah I, i'm kind of with val in terms of the top level of his talent deserves something big from his career but it says a lot that when you said he's won five races i was like seriously that many because it just it's yeah his that stat is not stuck in my head because I'm used to seeing him half a dozen places behind Binder most weekends. If the, the block here that stops him from being a championship contender is psychological, if it's something in what he does, which is entirely possible given the fact that he can dominate the way he can on weekends that aren't necessarily good KTM weekends, uh, there's, there's no correlation between his amazing weekends and ktm's up and down form it seems because he just goes and does it when he wants and it, it stands out so if that is something that he needs to address personally or with a good team around him uh, there's a good argument that aprilia is the place to do it because look what they've done for maverick vinales and he'll go to rnf he'll spend two seasons there as a satellite rider and then there probably will be a space at the factory team when Alicia Spagaro retires at the end of 2024. And I'd imagine he went to there kind of with one eye on that, thinking that that, that might be what plays out. Um, and, and maybe that's what it's going to take for him to be a championship contender in Aprilia and Massimo Rivola's warm and fuzzy team around him. We should, uh, we, there's one more topic we need to tackle in this podcast. It was the actually most read story on the website's MotoGP section last weekend. And that is one from 2019, the video that emerged of what happened in uh, with Tom Booth Amos in Moto3. Simon, you, um, you were on top of the story all weekend. Talk us through what happened and what the reaction's been, because it's, it's shocking, but at the same time, I think all of us know that this is this is not uh, this is something that does happen in, in motorsport. So, in 2019, uh, Tom Amos was having a fairly tough rookie season with the CIP Moto Squad. Um, I think he, he only scored points, maybe in one or two races, if at all, um, and and just didn't have a good time of it. We knew that things in the garage had been tense and I had heard rumours at the time that there'd been some sort of a physical altercation at the Thai Grand Prix, but the paddock can be quite a quite a closed ship sometimes and if people don't want to talk about something, we can't report it. That That's, you know, if, if people will go on the record and tell us this is what happened, then what do we do? So that was the case at the time. Fast forward three years and somehow a video of what actually happened has appeared online where he gets off the bike, which had just broken down through a mechanical problem halfway through the race. He walks into his garage uh, saying some rather rude things about the state of the bike and the team that put it together to his crew chief, it turns out. And then as he walks away, his crew chief just decides to start kicking him and basically, yeah, goes full on physical assault on him, which... It happens, yes, but it's normally verbal when it happens. Um, it's very, very rare that things, especially between a writer and a crew chief, turn physical. It is completely and utterly unacceptable. Um, it you just you can't have it in, in you can't have it in any sport, but you can't have it in Moto Three where half the guys here are, are minors. You know that 
you can't let someone who does this into a position of authority over a kid. Um, the person in question is now at Max Racing Team, who have had a less than stellar run of form of late recently in terms of headlines and actions anyway, with the news coming out this weekend that they've just sacked both of the team's two data engineers for uh, interfering with Adrian Fernandez at the Aragon Grand Prix and trying to basically hit the kill switch to stop him rolling out of pit lane to follow the rider. This is like multiple orders of magnitude worse than what they did. Um, and it seems from the initial comments from Biagi, the Max Biagi, the team boss, that he doesn't believe it's something that he can take action on because it didn't happen while said person was his in his employ. So quite simply, I think once they've had a chance to look at all the facts and talk to the characters involved, that MotoGP and, and the FIM, the governing body, have they need to cut this guy's pass in half and never give him another one. You just can't do that in this paddock. You can't do it in any paddock. You can't do it in any workplace, you know? You can't do it in any walk of life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, no, completely. And if if anything if anything kind of as consolation came out of this story emerging, it's just looking at the response to it. And there there was a degree of I've seen this happen in other pit lanes and even a degree of, you know, just toughen up, this is how you deal with things in sport. But that was so you know, so dominated by people going, No, actually, it's twenty twenty two in any walk of life, like you say, Val, you do not deal with a problem like this. You especially do not deal with a problem like this when you're effectively in, in charge of kids. And it's already, you know, there's already been other journalists writing stories about other things that happen in the paddock off the back of this um, that really bring into question the fact that there appear apparently is is essentially no safeguarding policy in MotoGP. There's no way to even report this sort of thing anonymously when it happens. Um, and and it is an absolutely hard thing to witness, but hopefully it's something that can actually force a bit of change through here now too. Ultimately, it's you know it was caught on video and it took three years to come out. So how many more garages have seen yeah, kicks completely. and punches? And even outside of that, probably I'd imagine horrible, horrible verbal abuse. Um, it's a high pressure environment. It's it, Obviously, it's not just the riders fighting for their careers. Everybody there is fighting for promotions, fighting for to stay with the team, fighting for the next paycheck, fighting to be able to put foot in the table. That's true. Um, but that's, you know, you can use that as an excuse if you're wrong, because it's not. You cannot treat fellow human beings like that. I honestly, uh, much credit to Alicia Spargaro for what he, what he told us that... Um, you know, he went to, once he saw the video, he immediately phoned up the uh, Dorna as a sporting director. Sporting director. Sporting director, Carlos Espeleta, to tell him to, to deal with this because, because he cared. And it's, it's good that he cares. But also, you know, just the factor, yes, Moto3 is, is full of minors and that is, that is a part of it. But just, you just can't treat people like that. Minors, majors, whatever, 18, 68, uh, 532. You can't treat people like that. You can't, you know, especially obviously because when you're a crew chief, you also you have a lot of power and influence over somebody and they have to trust you implicitly and the, the mental damage you can do by doing something like this. This is not what we want sports to be. Very clearly, very obviously, this is not what we want it to be. 
if this is what goes on behind the scenes. And if honestly, if you're a person who believes this is what goes on behind the scenes and this is fine, how can you watch this? Why would you watch this? If this is what you believe people to be like in this sport, then stop watching. Find somewhere where you believe in people being decent. Um, Yeah, I think it's it's as simple as that. Deal with it super severely. The person who was guilty for it has to go. There is there is no excuse. There is like we all have bad days, but there's you know if there's any path to redemption, it's a it's a long and thorny one. Um, and that's even if you if you somehow find out that this was a one-off isolated incident, which and this is not to talk about this specific case, but just generally, it almost never is. You do this once, you do this kind of thing over and over and over again because that's who you are, but. In this particular case, if there's any path to redemption, it's a long one. And uh, if there's a, you know, the path forward for MotoGP is that riders, team members, other people in the paddock should have a place where they feel safe to go and say, hey, I've been abused, like, like, you know, physically or mentally. And that should be dealt with because as long as that kind of thing is going on, if we genuinely believe this kind of thing is going on frequently behind the scenes, then the whole thing really should not be happening until, like the whole thing should be shut down until this is fixed. <laughs> yeah, a lot of sports are having a reckoning with abusive cultures at varying, at varying degrees of varying, of varying natures. And uh, like I said, when we started discussing this, the, the one good thing that comes out of that is the reaction to it is basically uniform horror these days and that you know things are being done to make it, yeah, make, make clear that this is unacceptable. So... Yeah, we'll see where, see where this goes next. I, in a way, if we didn't talk about this much more and if nothing else came out, I'd almost be disappointed because I feel like there'll be there'll be other incidents that need need to be looked at and other characters that need to be, you know, have their have their presence in their paddock reconsidered. Yeah, there's also, you know, an, an important sub-lesson in this is obviously we've seen Tom Booth Amos's uh, statement in which he said that he was sort of urged on to keep this quiet to maximize his chances of keeping his ride for next year, staying in the paddock for next year, which he did not do. He did not stay in the paddock. So it is important to remember this is that in cases like this, often a lot of people don't really have your back and they only, often they only want what's most convenient and least loud and often, and it's always an individual case, but often it's, it's good to get loud and it's, it's good to force public accountability, which I'm not saying Tom is wrong for not having done at the time. He was a Moto3 rider fighting for his, for his job. And it's, it's completely right that he did what he felt was best for his career. And it's, you know, it's on him to come forward with it or not. And, you know, now that it's been published, you know, sort of his hand has been forced. He's acknowledged it. And I'm, I'm really sorry he's had to go through this. And I'm really sorry how his Moto3 career has panned out. I think he's in a, a better place now in terms of career-wise. I think this weekend he was at, was it? British Superbike Support Series, British Supersport. I don't know how his weekend went, but I I think it went reasonably well. Yeah, it did. Um, so Tom's had a bit of a weird career journey since then. He went to uh, World Supersport 300 and fought for the championship there, actually, quite impressively, um, before kind of finding himself a bit, bit lost this recently. Um, but has, has found his way into British Shipper Sport this weekend as a replacement rider, actually, of all things. And it's a really good weekend. Um, first weekend in the series, two fourth places in a pole position. 
you know, it's it's good to see that there's a he's still enjoying riding motorbikes. Yeah, that is great actually that this coming out actually coincided with hopefully a career upturn for him as well. That is uh Yeah. That is ideal timing. So that has brought this podcast to a close on a on a bit of a, a low note, but with some positivity that at least gives hope for you know if this is commonplace or not that there's there is less of it in the future and anything that does happen is dealt with in in the ways it should be. Simon Val, thank you for your time. Um, keep an eye on the race.com, the dash race.com for all the build up to Phillip Island. Everything else will be analysing from what happened in Thailand. It's a very big week for F1 with um, some big budget cap semi scandal stuff going on, as well as a race coming up that could decide the world championship. Poor, poor F1 not having much of a title fight being resolved two months early. Shame. But to find out what happens in, in MotoGP, stick with the race MotoGP podcast. Toby's back next week. I'll see you after Phillip Island. The Athletic.